Hello, and welcome to the first episode in our Mobile Workforces mini-series. My name is Ruth Buchanan, and I'm an Employment Law Partner. And today I'm joined by Liz Parkin, a Senior Associate in a London office specialising in employment and business immigration. Our mini-series will explore the ever-changing immigration rules that underpin mobility issues and provide insights into the latest issues impacting our clients. We'll be covering the life cycle of the employment relationship from recruitment and onboarding issues through to managing a mobile workforce and what happens when the relationship comes to an end. In this first episode, our focus is on engaging skilled workers, what this means and what hurdles businesses need to overcome. You're listening to Ashurst Legal Outlook. Mobility is vital to allow businesses to attract talent, focus on growth areas and to expand, but freedom of movement is no longer as easy as it once was and our clients are now relying on visas on an increasing basis. So let's explore one of the most frequently used routes, the skilled worker. Liz, we've, we've seen a significant increase in clients looking for guidance on recruitment of migrant workers, cross-border work arrangements, and how best to attract talent into the UK. But why are we talking about this now? What is it that's changed? The sponsorship route isn't new. Uh, this is a system that's been in place in various guises for a number of years, and, and it's been used for employing applicants from, say, the US, Japan and Australia for, for quite a few years. However, many of our clients used to rely on the UK's membership of the EU and the benefits that came with the freedom of movement, both for travelling to Europe, but also then for recruiting candidates from the EU and moving their European staff from, from branches and moving them around Europe. Now, Brexit might seem a long time ago, but as with a number of other areas, the impacts were actually masked by the global pandemic. So it's only really now that our clients are seeing the real impact and effect that Brexit's having on things like recruitment and onboarding. And this isn't just about business trips to Europe becoming more difficult from an immigration perspective. It actually goes much deeper with businesses um, and they're reporting skill shortages and a really competitive recruitment market. And what this ultimately is meaning is that businesses are now having to get to grips with our immigration system what this means for a pool of talent that they've previously been able to freely access. And more often than not, this is now requiring those work visas. What, what does that actually look like for our clients, Liz? So the most frequently used immigration routes, and there are loads that we could talk about, but the ones that are used most often actually require the UK employer, the business, to hold what we call a sponsor licence. And that process, I mean, we could spend you know, hours talking about it, but fundamentally, the employers have to evidence that they are trustworthy and compliant in order to actually obtain and then retain that sponsor license. And this sponsor license then forms the framework for sponsoring different categories of worker. And that includes this skilled worker or what we used to call tier two route. And we'll come back to compliance issues in one of our later podcasts. But the key point to remember is that the license comes with reporting requirements, eligibility criteria and non-compliance can actually trigger that sponsor license being suspended or revoked, which could stop a business being able to engage a candidate that requires a work visa or even in serious instances, an existing sponsored employee being deported due to the loss of a license. So in terms of that skilled worker rate that you mentioned, what's actually involved in the visa process? What are the, the eligibility requirements you mentioned? So there are three sort of key ones that we focus on. And the first is the skills threshold. So presuming that a business already has that sponsor license, 
they then need to ensure that the role that they're looking to put that candidate in is actually eligible to be sponsored and then that that individual is eligible in themselves. So for the skilled worker route, the role has to be what we call NQF level three or above, which means that the role requires skills that are equivalent to A-level skills. And there's actually a list of eligible occupation codes in the immigration rules, and they're also set out on the .gov website. Not every single job title is included, but it is up to the business to identify the one that properly actually reflects that, that role and the skill set that they're looking to recruit for. And how would our clients go about, you know, looking to find out whether the role that they have is at the right level and what the right code that they should be applying is? So this all used to be on the, the .gov website. This has been taken offline now and it's actually it's in a separate place. There's an Office of National Statistics, an ONS website, which is linked at the top of that job coding list. And that ONS site lets you put their job title in and it will bring up potential job codes and examples of duties that fall within those job codes. And sometimes you might come up with three or four and the burden is very much on that business, on the sponsoring employer to look through those different possibilities, look at whether the role fundamentally aligns to one of those and to identify the correct one. The key issue here is that an individual is tied to the occupation code that is chosen for sponsorship. And we'll talk about that more in our next podcast. But it's important to get it right in the first place. As changes to things like job, uh, job title duties could actually trigger a new application process in its entirety if you haven't got it right that, that first time. The other thing um, that we look for is whether the salary is at the right threshold. So the, the occupation code actually ties into the, the minimum salary and the employee will need to be paid the higher of £25,600, which is the threshold, or the going rate. And in most instances also meet the £10.10 per hour rate. Now the going rate is set out against those occupational codes which are on the .gov website. And in a number of instances, those are significantly higher than that 25,600 baseline. So, for example, a financial advisor or analyst carries a £29,400 annual salary and a marketing director is as high as 54900 per annum. So quite often that going rate is quite significantly higher than that minimum threshold of the 25600 The other really, really important thing that's um, I think something that our clients are trying to get to grips with at the moment is that that going rate is based on a 39 hour working week. So the salary has to be prorated if you've got a different working pattern based on the weekly hours that you're stating that that employee is actually going to work. So you've got these various minimum thresholds and then this concept of the 39 hour working week that means that there's some maths involved in assessing whether someone's going to be eligible or not. There are some limited situations where a lower annual salary can be paid, um, so health and education roles, for example. Um, but in most instances, you're running with that £10, £10 per hour and those then minimum thresholds and the going rate. And where the individual salary does not meet those thresholds, then you simply can't sponsor them. And how does this work for part time roles? So, again, this is somewhat unhelpful, actually, but there is no prorating up. So if someone's on a part time role, then their salary still needs to meet those annual salary requirements. So if it's a three day a week financial advisor role, even though they're part time, the salary still needs to meet that £29,400 going rate in the £10.10 per hour calculation. 
And you mentioned um, that there are individual eligibility requirements as well. Um, what are they? One of the, the key ones that we come across is actually the English language requirement. In most instances, um, individuals will either need to take a test, um, that's a secure English language test from an approved provider, to prove that they can speak, read, write and understand English to a set level. There are examples where they don't need to take a test. For example, if the individuals from the USA or Canada or Australia or one of the countries that's acknowledged as English speaking, then they won't need to take that English language test. Also, if they've studied, for example, come to the UK and done a degree in English, or they've done a foreign degree and that meets a set standard, then again, they can provide evidence to show that they've actually already sort of you know, being able to show that they're able to read, write, speak and understand those English language requirements. And in addition to the English language requirements, the individual um, has to be of good character. And um, what that generally means is that they can't have been refused entry into the UK before. And in some roles, actually, criminal records checks might be required. There's also a requirement for people coming from particular countries, um, for example, China and Ukraine at the moment, where they have to take a, a tuberculosis test um, in advance. And one of the fundamental underlying concepts that really underpins all of these, these requirements is that this has to be a genuine role and the employer needs to be able to justify why that applicant is actually suitable for the role. Have they got those skills and experience needed to actually fulfill the role that they're telling the Home Office that they are looking to recruit for? I know that um, the Home Office have relaxed the rules on how a business um, actually evidences how they find the right applicant. Do businesses still need to advertise the role if they want to sponsor the candidate? So this is one of those changes that came in um, about a year or so ago now. And you're right that the formal requirement that applied to most roles previously for carrying out what we call the resident labour market test, which required the business to advertise in a set place for a set period of time, has been removed in most instances. However, there is still this requirement that the, the business needs to be able to identify to the Home Office how they found the candidate. And there's set information that the Home Office requests when the business wants to assign a certificate of sponsorship to the candidate. This is a cause. Now, this is the internal process on the system where they say this is the role we want. These are the skill set. This is the salary. And at the same time as telling the Home Office about the role, you have to say oh, we found a candidate. This is how we've we found them. And if you've gone through a recruitment process, for example, then there's set information that has to be retained and provided if requested about how you've identified that person, whether it was a competitive interview process, how you've identified they have the relevant skills. So looking at their CV, their track record references. And also um, you need to take things like a screenshot of the adverts and keep evidence of why the other candidates were actually unsuccessful. So you need to be able to justify to the Home Office why this particular person is best suited to the role. And there's a whole set list of information. If it's been a, a word of mouth or, or a referral, for example, and there hasn't been this competitive um, recruitment process, then you're going to need to be able to evidence still why this person is best suited. So if you set them an interview process, if you've got evidence of their online activity, if they've made the news for any reason, um, and again, things like CVs and references are gonna be really key in those instances. It all seems pretty complicated. I guess a key thing for our clients is that this all really takes a lot of planning and, and thought. Um, one question we always get asked is around timing. How, how long does it take to follow this route? 
So it, it does take quite a while. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you need to have that sponsor license up and ready to go. And once you've got the sponsor license, you then have a certificate of sponsorship that you basically say, we need this for this person. You then assign that to the person and you need quite a lot of specific information regarding the role, the candidate themselves. And as I said, to show it's genuine how you've recruited for this role. And once you're satisfied that the role and candidate are eligible, the business assigns this certificate to the individual and then the individual makes their own visa application. And depending on where they're applying from, this whole process from start to finish could take anywhere from a few weeks to a few months. Particularly if the, the business doesn't already have a sponsor license, then that in itself can take anywhere between eight to 18 weeks to obtain the license. And as you'd expect as well, there are costs associated with each stage of the process. So the sponsor license application process itself obviously attracts a fee, and this depends on the size of the business. It's £536 for small or charitable sponsors, or £1,476 for medium or large sponsors. You've then got a certificate of sponsorship to assign, and there's a £199 fee for that. Um, there's what we call the immigration skills charge, which attaches to most occupation codes. And in that instance, the business has to pay, essentially it works out for, for a medium or large business at about £500 for each six months. So if you've got a five-year skilled worker visa, that's £5,000 of an immigration skills charge that, that's charged to the business. And you can't pass that cost on to the employee. And how about for the individual, Liz? When the individual applies for their skilled worker visa, they need to pay the application fee which is anywhere between sort of 600 and sort of 1400 pounds, depending on whether they're in the UK or not. Pay the immigration health surcharge, and that's 624 pounds per year of their visa. And they also need to be able to show that they can financially support themselves. So for a five year visa, the total cost for the employer and the candidate side of things, without looking at legal advice, without looking at things like English language tests, TB tests, or translating documents, can be around the £10,000 mark. And that isn't including, for example, if um, in individuals want to bring with them a dependent or a spouse, because they're going to have their own visa costs. So the processing times for the individuals will depend on whether they're in the UK or outside. It's generally around three to six weeks, but at the moment there are significant delays with processing times, sometimes being double because of the Ukraine crisis. Um, so you need, really need to think about this whole process and plan and have all the information ready to go so it doesn't delay sort of the, the business's plans. And can you do it um, any, any more quickly? Um, there are priority and super priority options. So for a sponsor license application, so if the business is needing to apply for that license in the first instance, there is a priority service. It's a bit of an interesting process because it's a first come first served email. So you have to email the home office between about well, after nine o'clock in the morning, but not before nine o'clock in the morning, in which case they just ignore your email. And it's the first 10 applications that they receive get through to a priority process, which is charged at 500 pounds. And you can imagine the amount of applications that they get, it's, it's quite difficult sometimes to get through on that, that priority service. And the individuals themselves can apply for priority services, which takes those decision times down potentially to only a few days. 
that comes at a cost. So that can be anywhere between 500 and 1500 pounds on top of all those additional visa fees. Um, the priority and super priority for individuals is still running inside the UK. So for people here, say, switching or extending, but that's actually been suspended for applicants outside of the UK, again, due to the Ukraine crisis and the Home Office focusing on those very important visa applications coming in from the Ukraine. Thanks very much, Liz. I mean, that's you know, an incredibly helpful summary. I mean, I, I guess what I take away from this conversation is in order for you as, a, as an employer to be able to be really clear that you've got this genuine you know, role, you really need to get to grips with all of these different requirements. And because the process takes, you know, potentially quite a lot of time and you're going to be incurring significant costs, you really need to make sure that you've got a team putting in that, you know, that that thought, the planning, and making sure that they they have that good understanding of all of these these different groups. Yeah, and I think that's the thing is a number of our clients have been applying for sponsor licenses now in anticipation of needing to recruit. So, and you can do this, um, particularly with with Brexit and things. Um, actually, saying to the Home Office, or oh, we think we anticipate we're going to need to recruit people from outside of the UK and actually getting that sponsor license process up and running it in place in readiness so that it isn't causing these long delays and also fundamentally just making sure that those who are dealing with recruitment are aware of some of the hurdles that need to be overcome and that the right information is given to the right people so that again there aren't these timing issues and also that the key documents are retained so that when the home office is asking for information about recruitment processes the business has already got that to hand ready to provide so it doesn't cause this back and forth back and forth delay process. Liz thanks so much for talking to us this morning it's been an incredibly uh, helpful summary. No problem Ruth it's been great speaking with you. Thanks for listening if any listeners want to get in contact with Liz or myself then our details are on the Ashurst website ashurst.com. We have some more exciting podcasts on the way including looking at how to manage changes to sponsored workers the new global mobility routes, right to work and onboarding. To ensure you don't miss any future episodes, do subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast platform. While you're there, please feel free to keep the conversation going and leave us a rating or a review. Until then, thanks again for listening. If you enjoy Ashurst Legal Outlook, why not check out our other two podcast series as well? Ashurst Business Agenda tackles the big strategic issues that business leaders face. And ESG Matters at Ashurst reveals how business leaders are rising to mounting environmental, social and governance challenges. You can listen and subscribe to Business Agenda and ESG Matters wherever you get your podcasts.